My opening question this morning is, is Jesus for bad people or isn't he? Is Jesus for bad people or is he not? The way you answer that question is going to speak volumes about you. If we get the answer to the question right, we will be able to see Jesus for who he is. We'll be able to see ourselves for who we are. How about this? We'll be able to be faithful followers of Jesus if we know whether or not he's for bad people. Because we're then either going to be for bad people or we're going to be against bad people. So the stakes are high. It's either going to be wonderful and we'll have things figured out and we'll be able to know who Jesus is and we'll be able to follow Jesus. Or if we get the answer wrong, we're really not going to know who Jesus is and we're really not going to know how to follow Jesus. Is he for bad people or is he not? It's an important question that we're going to be able to learn about today because Jesus speaks to the issue. He acts to the issue, if you will. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be in our Bibles. So let's go to Luke 15. If you're not already there, we're going to look at the first 10 verses. And once again, the context is, is a conflict. Um, butting heads once again. Jesus is butting heads with the religious establishment. And like so many times, when this happens, it gives Jesus a great opportunity to show love to shed light where there isn't any love and there isn't any light. And so while we might not like conflicts and we might be getting tired of seeing Jesus in conflict, the great thing is it's another opportunity for him to shed light, to show love where there is no light and there is no love. And we can be thankful for it. Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem uh, because he's heading toward the cross. He's really been heading there ever since he was born. But he's still on the outskirts of town. He's still doing local ministry, if you will, in the rural area, if you will. And he's doing amazing things. He's showing love. He's shedding light. He's proving that he really is the long, uh, long ago promised Messiah, the deliverer. And it's not going well between Jesus and the religious establishment. And we're going to have opportunity to learn about whether or not he's for bad people or he's against bad people. Let's go ahead and look at the first two verses before we take a bit of a pause. Verse 1 says, now the tax collectors, in one sense we could say, boo, okay? Now the tax collectors and sinners double boo, okay? I shouldn't do that, but um, if we had two services still, I wouldn't do it next hour, but anyway. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That is Jesus. Then verse 2 says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I have to stop and ask you a real important question, and that is this. Do the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders the supposed Bible experts, do they have any basis for being against tax collectors and sinners? Do they have any basis whatsoever for being against tax collectors and sinners? Some of you are saying no. Some of you are doing this thing. Uh, we're going to get there, but let's at least for now 
not jump to the punchline. Let's just stop and make the observation. They do have a basis for doing it. Because they're bad people. Okay, so, so if they're going to, if the Pharisees and scribes are going to say, this is what God's holy law says. That sin is bad. Well, based upon that, they have a basis for saying that sinners are bad. I mean, what, what, what should they be saying? Oh, sinners. Sinners are good. What kind of Bible experts would they be? Sin, sin is not good. Sin, according to 1 John chapter 3, is lawlessness. Sin is violating God's holy, good, righteous law. So sinners should be opposed, right? On a certain level. I mean, what kind of religion is this? I mean, we would never say sin is good. Uh, and then you have tax collectors. Tax collectors are, are Jewish people who have, in a sense, sold their soul to make an unhonest buck because they're in cohorts with the Roman government. One person said this about tax collectors. The tax gatherer is the personification of licensed violence, of legal sin, of spacious greed. They're bad people. So I didn't want to get too far ahead too fast because we kind of know how it ends and that's why some of you are saying they have no basis. And in the end you're going to be right, but they do have a basis. They should think sinners are Sinners, okay? Uh, they, they should think tax collectors are corrupt because, because they are. And so they shouldn't be for them. They should be able to say, that's sin and sin is bad. So let's at least start there before we go any further, before we know much more than that. And now I want to ask you another question. Lots of questions today. So what's the problem? Sinners are Sinners. That's a good idea to be able to say that, you know, the color blue is blue. <laughs> Pretty profound, you know. Tax collectors are, are tax collectors. They're, they're, they're corrupt by nature. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is these guys, these scribes and Pharisees, don't see Jesus for who he is and for what he came to do. Because Jesus came... To, to, to pay for people's sins. Jesus came to, to, to relieve people of their guilt. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, to quote Matthew chapter 1. He came for people like that. And so Jesus is just doing what Jesus is supposed to do, even based upon what the Old Testament would say he's supposed to do. So they don't see Jesus for who he is, and so this is scandalous, because they don't see him for who he is. Let's take it a little bit further. They don't see themselves for who they are, right? They don't see themselves for who they are. Because the scribes and Pharisees who are looking down their self-righteous noses at sinners are themselves what? They themselves are sinners. They're not reading their own literature, okay? They're not reading their own book. They're, they're, they're selective Bible readers, Psalm 14 would be a classic one. I'll simply reference Psalm 14 of one text that they should be aware of, uh, not to mention their own experience. Um, but Psalm 14 says in verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. So there's the picture. God looks down from heaven and, he, and he's looking at the human race to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. God is looking. 
He's looking, he's looking for, for anybody who's seeking after God. Verse 3 says, they have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The scribes and Pharisees, the Bible experts, in practical terms, though they could have quoted it to you in Hebrew, in practical terms, they've been selective readers and they've forgotten who they are. They're against bad people, but they've forgotten that they themselves are bad. The Apostle Paul, as many of you know, quotes Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3. So we have it in both Testaments. Um, and we could go to other passages as well. The scribes and Pharisees would be right in saying that sin is sin. But they also have to look in that, in that spiritual mirror that we all don't like to look in, but need to look in, so that we know that we're all actually bad people doesn't mean we don't do relative good, but when it comes to honoring God with, with right motives, with all of our faculties, when it comes to honoring Him and treating Him as, as He is, as the God, we all fall short. We all fall short. So they would be right in concluding that you know God doesn't like sin and, and, and God is opposed, but they would also need to see themselves in the same light and then they need to see Jesus for who He is. It's not complicated. It hurts, but it's not complicated. Oh, by the way, just if you would, and we'll keep moving on here in just a moment, but do look back, um, chapter 14, verse 35, uh, the, the section just before ours in chapter 15, in Luke 14, 35, it ends by saying this, Jesus, I'm quoting Jesus here, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Isn't that interesting? The last thing we heard him say, those of you who are spiritually attuned, those of you who have ears to hear spiritually, listen. The assumption there is there are those who are without spiritual hearing. Okay? Isn't it interesting in our passage, who has the spiritual hearing? Not the Bible experts, sadly and ironically in this case. The people who have the spiritual hearing are the people who are in touch with the fact that they're bad people. Certainly a lesson to be learned there. Who's listening? Not the self-righteous people. They're not listening. The people who are going to be ready to listen are going to be the people who are drawn to Jesus and they're the people who at least have some sense of their badness. This is pretty relevant for us. It always has been and always will be because we're always prone to Phariseeism, that little Pharisee that lives in, in all of our hearts. We want to look down on bad people because certainly we're not them. But when we're those kinds of people who draw those kinds of conclusions, we're the kinds of people who don't have ears to hear. We're spiritually deaf. It's so good that Jesus came here it's so good that Jesus had these confrontations with people who were the respected people so that people who were then there and who are now here can understand who Jesus is. We can understand the gospel. I'm thankful for these exchanges and for these conflicts, and I hope you are too. We can see Jesus for who He really is. 
May God help us to see that Christ is not for the good people here. He's actually for the bad people. Well, now Jesus is going to help us more because he's going to give us a couple parables. And so the parables come. There's two parables. We're going to go ahead and look at those now, beginning in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And what do you think Jesus is assuming everyone's going to conclude? Everybody. He's just assuming that we could all understand. Maybe we, maybe we don't understand as well as they did, but the obvious answer is, well, that's what a shepherd does. And, and sheep are prone to wonder. And so when one is missing, you, you go get that one that's missing. And, and that's, that's just how it works. Now, isn't it interesting? Jesus is telling this parable in the context of going after these people who are the lost ones. He's, ma- he's making a simple point, a, a helpful point. He's talking about his love and his compassion and his kindness and his duty, his mission, if you will, just like a shepherd would be on mission to do that. Then in verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, verse 7 says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. That makes sense. Makes lots of sense. The illustration would have made sense to them, but then when he drives the point home, it would have been encouraging to those who are the lost. It's encouraging to us who who have ears to hear, but it's not so encouraging for the leaders. I don't know if you noticed or not, and um, I'll point it out to you, but the thing that struck me the first several times I read the passage um, was the fact that Jesus is responding to those in verse 2 who are grumbling. Grumbling. We hate this about Jesus. And what is he doing with those guys? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Friend of sinners, grumble, grumble, grumble. And then did you notice in verses 5 to 7? Rejoicing, rejoicing, joy. I mean, we're meant to see the contrast. Those leaders are grumbling because Jesus is the friend of sinners. And what we're hearing now is heaven rejoices at the very thing these pretenders grumble about. It just shows how absolutely upside down and wrong we can be, even those of us who say we believe the Bible is true. Because these guys would have. Jesus is the very thing they're against. Heaven is for. Because after all, again, not to be, you know, Not to insult your intelligence, but again, remember, Jesus came for sinners. What heaven rejoices over, what God is pleased with, is the very thing they grumble about. And the tragedy is, you can be wearing the right uniform and not be on the side of heaven. These guys are wearing the right uniform. They would have said, we're waiting for Messiah, we're waiting for deliverance. 
surely the Old Testament talks about sin and atonement and reconciliation and forgiveness and that it would be delivered ultimately by Messiah. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Amen. I mean, think about how relevant this is to us. Our proneness, again, our, because we say we belong to Messiah, is to think we're the good people. And we're the good people, and we're therefore against bad people. That, that, that's kind of our go-to game plan. And so this is so relevant for us. Those who are on the side of Jesus, those who are on the side of heaven, rejoice when a sinner repents. What gets heaven excited, if you will? When people see Jesus for who he is, as the savior of good people. No, the savior of sinners, bad people. Because that's why he came. I suppose I, should, I, I shouldn't assume things, I, I, since it's so important and it's what causes heaven to rejoice. Um, we should see in verse 7, uh, repentance. And I, I should be able to ask you, you know, so what is that? What, what does it mean to repent? And the basic word means to change your mind. It's not to clean up your life, because then salvation would be by works. And we wouldn't need Jesus to seek and save the lost. He'd need to seek and help the seeking. Or something like that. You change your mind. By God's grace, repentance is granted. We could see in other texts. By God's grace, you change your mind. Think about what you need to change your mind about. Maybe you need to change your mind about who God is. Change your mind about who you are. Not the good person inherently, but actually the bad person, the sinner. And then ultimately it finds its climax and you change your mind about who Jesus is. He really is the one who can relieve me of my guilt. He really is the one who is the Savior. He is worthy of my trust because of what He's accomplished. Over one sinner, oh, I guess that's part of repentance. I have to see that I am a sinner. I'm a lawbreaker by nature. And, and I, I'm going to see Jesus for who He is, the law keeper and the one who provides atonement for my law breaking. And, and now I'm going to trust in Him. That's repentance. And when one sinner repents, what happens in heaven? You know, this is what's exciting. This is, this is what thrills heaven, if you will. Because... That's what Jesus came to do. That's his mission, to seek and save the lost. So that's what's important. That's, that's the aim. One other question about the actual text itself, because it's a little bit of a challenge sometimes, especially when we're new to the Bible. And who are the 99 who don't need repentance? That's us, right? Who are those people? Well, based on everything we know from the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's an empty set. There actually is no such group. There's none righteous, no, not one. Whether it's Romans 3 or Psalm 14, on the list could go, all have sinned. Jesus is speaking a parable, making a point. 
You know what's more exciting than you guys? What's more exciting is where one sinner repents. But he's certainly not making the point. But you guys don't need to repent because you guys are all good. I love this. Maybe I love this because I know that I'm not inherently good. And if you know that you're not inherently good, you love this too. And you say, this is awesome. If you are thinking you're inherently good, then it's a rub. I know it's a rub. Let me ask you this question. This is open for everybody. How much sinning have you done? Could you make a list? Um, How bad have you been? You don't don't have to fall on your sword. (laughs) I love it. Think about it. Well, you know, when I was a kid one time, I took some jelly beans and they told me to take two and I took six. I'm definitely a sinner. Well, that's a start if you're, you know, a jelly bean kleptomaniac. I mean, thank you for being honest. Um, I think I told a lie one time. I'll just be the first one, you know, to say, hello, my name is Pat and I have a problem. And then you say... Hello, Pat. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was pretty good. Not too good, but... (laughs) I like to say that I... I don't like to say this, but in all honesty, I think I've been sinning the whole time I've been preaching the sermon. I think God is pleased with our good works. If the Spirit of God is what creates the good works in them, don't misunderstand. But the standard is God's good and holy law, and that standard is love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all of your faculties, all that you are, including motives. And and I don't think for a second that I've ever done that ever in my life. I don't think you have either. So we're all guilty. You may not buy my argument, But I do know that's what God's law says. And I do know that sin is lawlessness. Next question is, how do you view other sinners? How do you view other bad people? Because when it comes to being acceptable before God, if you're on your own, you're a bad person. You're a, you're, you're a lawbreaker on your own. This is so important for us. It's so important because then we're going to be ready to see Jesus for who He is and for what He did. And it's, that's why we call it good news. I'm giving you the guilt, but the guilt allows us, it's the pathway, if you will, to see the good news. I mean, getting ahead of myself, but I can't resist the good news that He's not a lawbreaker. That he did what he did in our place. And that then he goes to the cross in our place to be treated as if he did break the law. And he doesn't. And then he is raised again from the dead. And and it's on our behalf. This is absolutely staggering news. 
But who has ears to hear? The bad people. Well, they're all bad. The people who actually confess up and acknowledge and agree with God that they're bad. Remember what First John says, it just comes to mind, that people who say they have no sin call God a... Anybody know? Help me out. They call God a liar. That's why we need Christ. Sermon title today is Rejoice! Jesus is for bad people. Yeah, and the spiritual mirror shows us that's us. This is tremendous. This is extraordinary. Now, please don't misunderstand. Jesus, in no way is he saying sin is good. No way is he saying bad is good. No way is he for injustice. You you couldn't draw those conclusions. I mean, I suppose you could try to just in our passage, but based upon the whole thing, that's not the case. He's not for badness. He's not for sin. He's not for unrighteousness. But the good news is he's for sinners. That's the love of God shown to us in Christ. Again, think about, apart from this context, apart from this sermon, who do you naturally think Jesus is for? The good guys or the bad guys? Our proneness, and and even if it's not you, your friend who maybe doesn't know the Bible as well as you do, who needs some help in this so they can see Jesus for who he really is, more than likely you have friends and people in your life that think Jesus is for the good guys. And it's true, he's for righteousness. But first and foremost, since we're all sinners, we have to know he's for the bad guys because there aren't any good guys. You've got to know that. And talk about helping you to be a better missionary. Talk about helping you to be, to be a better ambassador. Because if we think we're good and Jesus is for the good guys, we'll never, ever, ever understand that thing standing behind me. Now, let's look at a second parable. Same thing, second parable. Verse 8 says, Or, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. Well, that that would be obvious. She would do that. He expects us to draw that conclusion. Verse 9 says, "And, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And verse 10, Just so. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same thing, right? It's the same thing. What makes heaven happy, if you will? Good people acting good. Well, that's an empty set. Bad people seeing Jesus for who he is, repenting, being saved, rescued, delivered. That makes heaven rejoice. It makes heaven happy. Do remember, you can jot it down if you'd like to. Um, Do remember, it's been in my mind the whole time. I just haven't referenced it directly. I've quoted it in essence. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. We'll get there in time. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man 
came to seek and save the lost. That's the very thing He came to do. That's His mission. That's why He came. He didn't come here to help the good people. He came to seek and save the lost. We were singing about it this morning. We were hearing about it this morning. He sought us when we were strangers. He's the deliverer. It's all His action, not our action. And so... From our passage today, we learn so much about Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, you know, I know all this stuff about Jesus. Awesome. Would you find some other people and help them know? We learn so much about who has ears to hear. And you say, I already know that. Well, awesome. I can introduce you to people who have no concept, no clue, that think that Jesus is for good people. It's no wonder we don't understand who He is. It's no wonder we don't understand. Now, let's apply it on a different level now. As disciples of Jesus. So, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple, you're a follower of Jesus. So, you're not following so that if you follow good enough, then He'll accept you. No, you're acceptable because of what He does, because of His perfect work. But as a follower of His, a disciple of His, what can we learn from this? I wrote down some things that might be helpful. You're probably ahead of me. I'm going to learn that Jesus calls sin, sin. Verse 10, Jesus doesn't make a lot of sense unless there's sin. So He's willing to do that. I also learned from this as a follower of Jesus who has a burden for people who don't know Jesus, who might think they're good and they're they're not in touch with reality. He also calls for repentance in verse 10. That's important because sometimes we have a view of Jesus that thinks Jesus is the great humanitarian. But he's so much more than that. Jesus shows up and he's with sinners, yes, Dealing with sinners, yes, but he does call for repentance. He doesn't leave well enough alone. That wouldn't be loving, kind, and gracious. There needs to be repentance so they see him for who he is. And so we want to do that. We want to do that. I also want to learn that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Clearly, verse 1 makes that clear. A lot of times this passage... I shouldn't say a lot. Sometimes it's, it's used as a license for sinful behavior. I don't want to learn that. Well, you know, Jesus is just one of the boys. And he just, you know, he could just sin with the best of them. He's being missional. Well, you don't get that sense. Because he does call for repentance. He does call sin, sin. But in our circles, the kind of circles we run in, we, we tend to not go there. And maybe it's a worse crime that we commit. We, we just ignore it. This is where we get in trouble because we start applying the Bible. It's so interesting. People say, oh, it's just too much, too much information, too much history. I need something that applies to my life. And then typically when we talk about applied to life, well, I don't like that. Because um, it's kind of a rub. So what we could do is close our Bibles or push off on our screens, whichever, um, 
We could turn our Bibles off. Doesn't it sound weird? Um, and we could kind of be on our way. Yeah, that was interesting what happened there. And I think it is important for us to grapple with the fact that, that maybe as followers of Jesus, we, we, we don't try to be like Jesus in the sense, no, we're not Jesus. We're never going to be just like him. But we are his followers. We are called ambassadors. We're called to proclaim the good news of salvation. This is really good text for us because our tendency in circles, at least that I run in and churches like this, our tendency is holy huddle mode, isolation. Yeah, I used to be a bad person and now I'm really glad that I'm only with well, good people. You know what I mean, pastor. <laughs> Jesus is the friend of sinners. Are you? It's an important question, I think. To be a follower of Jesus, at least on this level, is to be the friend of sinners. Maybe so much of a friend that some angry right-wing fundamentalists are going to grumble about your friendships. Has anybody ever grumbled about you being friend of sinners? Hmm. I'm not saying it's like a litmus for being a Christian, but might be worth thinking about. A recent phenomenon in Christian history is to take our activities that we used to just do and attach the word Christian to them. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say it probably hasn't helped us in being friends of sinners. It's a relatively new phenomenon to have Christian... I'm going to step on toes here. I'm not saying there's not a place for this. But it's a relatively new phenomenon that tends to lead toward isolationism. Maybe not always. Maybe not in your case. But to join the Christian Fisherman's Club. I think I've been interested in fishing lately because my body hurts and I think it's my next extreme sport. Um, I'm pretty much, you know, thinking that's where I'm going next. Um, Christian sportsmen. I looked yesterday just for fun because it's not something I ever planned to be involved in. There's Christian math. There's a website. Um, I kid you not. Um... Our family's been really into wakeboarding. There's Christian wakeboarding organizations. Uh, I've recently picked up cycling. There's Christian cycling groups. Not saying there's never a place or no good comes from it, but it's a relatively new phenomenon to have Christian isolation groups. And I'm going to suggest to you that they may not be helpful in our being the friend of sinners. You know what a Christian isolation group is in the Bible? It's called the church. The church gathers for worship and equipment and equipping and we're together and this is what we do and we're with other believers. And then there's not a Christian math club. There's not a Christian Roman military official club. I mean, we don't get any sense of that, but there are Christians who are Roman military officials. 
And you say, you're arguing from silence. Yes, I am arguing from silence. But what you do have in the Bible is the Christians gather for worship and equipping and, and fellowship together. And then Christians do all different sorts of things. How about Christians do all sorts of things with bad people? <gasps> so I want to push you a little bit. I'm not saying you have to quit every organization you belong to. But I at least want you to think about it. How can you be a friend of sinners? Meaning non-Christians in this case, even though we're all sinners. The last thing in the world I would ever do is join a Christian cycling group. For lots of reasons. But I want to be with unbelievers. So I have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. I want to be with them, actually. And not further isolate, because when you isolate, here's what tends to happen. It's us, the good people, against them, the bad people. It's not always the case. Did you know that during the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin, like him or hate him, he was influential, no question about it. John Calvin was known in history as locking the doors of the church, literally and figuratively. The church gathers for worship, that's what it does, and then we lock the doors. Not when you're in, by the way, that's a cult. <laughs> when you leave, sorry, come back on Sunday. Sorry, come back on Wednesday if we have a Wednesday service or whatever it might be. But the, the intent is, among other things, at least in part, the intent was, go about your business. Go about your business with your neighbors who may or may not be Christians. In the spirit of Calvin, figuratively speaking, I want to lock the doors. I want to lock the doors to our Christian organizations too sometimes. And say, let's get our hands dirty. Jesus is the friend of sinners. So much so that people grumbled about it because he was talking to them and, and on a certain level accepting them. Because he's having a meal with them. On another level, he's not accepting them because he actually does call them to repentance. He actually does talk to them about sin. Now I've got myself in all kinds of trouble because I tried to apply the Bible. Next week I'll just lecture and we'll talk about what Greek words mean and we'll talk about grammar and syntax and then you'll all be happy and say, that was deep and profound. I have no idea how it applies to me, but it's deep and profound. No. Just being a little sarcastic. We want to be on heaven's side. And so we want to be doing things that allow us to tell people about Christ who don't know Christ. And to be able to explain sin to them. Which, by the way, is pretty hard sometimes in the 21st century. But I'm up for it, and I hope you're up for it. And heaven will be rejoicing even if other people are grumbling. That's what we want to do. We want to be all about that. Here's the best part of the whole passage. Best part of the whole passage. If you would, it's actually not even in our passage. But if you turn to Isaiah 53, and we'll be wrapping up the service. Isaiah 53 is a great cross-reference to our text, to our passage. Some of you will know it by heart. Others of you won't. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Psalms is about in the middle. And you can find Isaiah if you start working your way to the right. Isaiah 53, a messianic text. This is, this is the best part. The best part of realizing Jesus is for bad people 
is the reality that that means He's for us. <laughs> if we're sinners, He's for us. And so we, we'll guard this thing like crazy. This is awesome. This is fantastic. He's, he's for people like us. Rejoice. He's for bad people. Because if we're really honest before God, Jesus is for good people. Medicate me, please. <laughs> he's for bad people. He's for people like us. Isaiah 53, 6 is a great, great one. All. Okay, so that's another inclusive kind of passage when it comes to sin. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. That complements what Jesus was talking about in our text. We have, have turned everyone, again, all-inclusive, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, talking about Messiah, talking about Jesus, the iniquity or the sin or the lawlessness of us all. That's a great Old Testament gospel text. Yes. Awesome. Good news. Rejoicing. We're rejoicing. And you know what? Heaven rejoices at that too because that's what Jesus came to do. To seek and save the lost. Isn't it great? Talk about practical. It's practical forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. He's for bad people like you. He's for bad people like me. And the good news is He does take our iniquities on Himself. By the way, that's how this whole thing can work. That's how all of this works. That's how it even maintains logical consistency. If Jesus just showed up and said, Oh, uh, sinners, lawbreakers, uh, I'm for you. End of story. That wouldn't be good and it wouldn't work. Christianity, what, what in the world? God says blue is orange. That, that doesn't even make sense. Two plus two is 77. That doesn't even make any sense. By the way, that would be an act of lawlessness. The reason it works is the iniquities that belong to us are laid upon Him and the payment is made. Justice is maintained and logical consistency is upheld. Not to mention the fact that through His whole life He obeyed the law and upheld the law and loved His Father with heart, soul, mind, and strength. It all works. The only, the only way, and here's one reason why maybe you're friends or maybe you've struggled to not get this. How could he be for bad people? The one thing that makes it work is his work. He can be for bad people because he represents bad people as the good one. And Christianity is so much all about representation. That's why the Apostle Paul says, the just, the righteous or the law keeper, for the unjust, for representation, so that he might bring us, ah, he's seeking and saving, he's doing the work, so that he might bring us to God. Yes, awesome. Respond with worship and praise. I'm so glad to meet all of you bad people today. I like it when I ask some of you, how are you doing today? And you say, better than I deserve. I know, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like this. Try it out this week when you go to the supermarket. People go, huh? How you doing today? Oh, a lot better than I deserve. What? Hmm. Might spark conversation. A little open crack in the door for you to be the ambassador to let them know that they're bad, just like you. 
but there's a good Savior who's trustworthy.